You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen the anarchist woolless week australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse listen to analysis of local national international events listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else welcome to the anarchist world this week broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This is still a four-way conversation. I'm in one place. Community Radio 3CR is in another place. The Community Radio Network is in another place, and uh, you're in another place. You could be anywhere from Broome to Taree to Mount Beauty to Adelaide to who knows where in Australia this program is broadcast across the country by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. If you are Called away during the program, nature calls. The uh, bikey next door needs a cup of sugar for his uh, lab. Well, relax. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. It could be, it could be the young people next door learning to cook scones want a cup of sugar. You never know. Always answer the knock at the door. could actually be a neighbour. So this, um, look... Last week I uh, mentioned the uh, Murdoch Empire and I described it as a degenerative, degenerative neurological disorder which destroys the body, the mind and the soul if you get exposed to it for too long. And what I want to do for the first few minutes of this program is just look at how it acts in its own interests. Now, as you know, Foxtel has a significant uh, degree of influence in, in uh, the United States, in the United States election and a less degree of influence in Australia, although its degree of influence, I've noticed, has been increasing in Australia. And um, I have noticed the difference, I'm sure you've noticed the difference in reporting regarding the coronavirus and uh, the response to the coronavirus by the same organisation, the United States of America and uh, Australia. And you may have noticed over the last few weeks there's been a concerted, or the last few months, a concerted attempt uh, to get rid of the Andrews-led Labor government in Victoria. Now, look, I've got my differences, and uh, you know those differences regarding emergency powers, extended emergency powers, and all this goes on and on. It's incompetence. But when you look at their response to the coronavirus in the United States of America, it's a totally different response. You may say to me, well, they're different editorial teams. There's no such thing as a different editorial team in the uh, Murdoch empire. It's James Murdoch who walked away from uh, you know, billions of dollars a few months ago because of the, uh, the nature of that organisation pointed out. I mean, there is only one editorial position. It doesn't matter whether you're in England, whether you're in India, 
with the United States of America or in Australia as one editorial position. And so it's just fascinating to see how the Murdoch Empire has only one interest. It's not interested in the future of the country it's working in. It's not interested in the uh, the people in the countries they are working in. It's not even interested in its uh, minor shareholders. All it's interested in is the Murdoch family and its major shareholders. And it will adopt whatever position necessary in order to maximise profits and carry political favour. And most importantly of all, to ensure that legislation isn't passed in parliaments and uh, organisations and uh, nations, sovereign nation-states around the world, which impinge on its profitability. It's that simple. That is the only criteria that is used in order to determine editorial policy. So in the United States of America, where uh, Mr Trump is currently president, they take uh, a radically different position to coronavirus to which they take in Australia. And when you look at the position they've taken in Australia, it's basically a position which has been aimed at eliminating um, state Labor governments uh, in this country. Not that I have uh, much uh, support. Well, I don't have actually any support for the Andrews-led Labor government because when you look at its policies, it's been policies of privatisation, they privatise ports, and even the titles office. It's been policies of going into public-private public partnerships, especially with Transurban, with the uh, new tunnel under the arrow, which uh, puts all the cards in the hands of the private corporations. It's had a policy of trying to privatise um, public housing now for a number of years, and the list goes on and on. But obviously, uh, they have a political agenda. We have an agenda. Our agenda is very simple. Our agenda is to devolve power, that's share power, and hold wealth in common and use it for their common good. Their agenda is to maximise profits for the Murdoch family and the major shareholders of uh, that corporation. So when you listen to news, when you listen to analysis, there's no such thing as value-tree news and analysis. All analysis is based on specific values, and uh, we're, we're based on, as I said, Two specific values. Anarchism is about creating a society without rulers. How you remove rulers is by breaking down hierarchy, by devolving power, by holding wealth in common and sharing wealth goods, inequalities in power and wealth, which give uh, people, whether in the private sector or in a positions of authority in uh, sovereign nation states, the ability to determine the lives of uh, billions of people. All right, let's move on. A lot of people say to me, why don't you comment on the United States election? Well, look, I don't live in the United States of America. I've actually never been to the United States of America. I've never wanted to go to the United States of America. I did go to Alaska uh, in 2007, which is part of the United States, but I've never really wanted to go. And I've never really seen anything that interesting in the United States of America. And I think the election of Trump and the, uh, the Trump-Biden uh, contest in inverted commas, I mean, highlights the, uh, highlights the shortcomings of that particular system. Huge shortcomings. And uh, the death of so many Americans over the last uh, nine to 12 months highlights how what will happen in this country if we go down that path as far as our education sector is concerned, as far as our healthcare sector is concerned, and it's been very, and as far as our labour laws are concerned. 
And it's been very worrying in this country over the last 40 years as we've seen us go down that path of trying to destroy the uh, destroy the health system, privatise the health system in this country, the public health system, uh, destroy the public education sector and destroy every aspect of uh, uh, the public good in this society. So there are those correlations and what we've seen over the last... 40 years is the domination of a, a, an economic uh, order that is based on the creation of uh, monopolies which then determine government policies in the long run. So it's uh, quite interesting what's happening there. So obviously the American people will make their decisions, but I would like to talk about the nature of their electoral system because a lot of people think it's some type of uh, mega-democracy. Well, if you compare it with the mixed proportional representation system, which we saw in play in New Zealand uh, during the elections uh, a few uh, a few days ago, and you look at the electoral process in the United States of America, you can actually see there are positives and negatives. Now, the positives as far as the United States of America electoral process is concerned is that at the state level, people can raise... Uh, Citizens initiated referendums. They can put up uh, issues for debate and uh, to be voted on. Uh, and the people themselves have that ability, which is a positive. There's also the positive that a lot of uh, positions, uh, public positions, uh, are decided by uh, the electoral process. So that's, that's something that we don't have in this country, which is positive. But the negative is, as far as presidential elections are concerned and the Senate and Congress is concerned, there is no federal electoral system. We have the uh, Federal Electoral uh, Office, which uh, regulates the federal elections, which uh, you know implements government uh, legislation regarding elections and supposedly, in the majority of cases, the hand-off, hands-off process. No, it's state. It's a totally political process because it's not the amount of votes that you get, as we saw in the New Zealand election, and I'll look at that in a minute, but it's what's called the Electoral College votes, which is the which is the votes that the person who wins the greatest number of votes in a particular state gets, which determine who is president and who isn't president in the United States of America. And what you see, especially in the more conservative states, you see legislation which is passed, which is designed to deny the vote to minorities and to deny the vote to the more radical reformist voices in their society. And we've seen that in the south of the United States for a long, long time, where uh, people who were... Um, you know, people of colour have been denied the ability to actually register to vote. And even when they're registered to vote, if they actually vote, they may find a knock on the door and uh, horrible things happening to them. So this has been the history of the electoral process as far as the presidential elections are concerned in the United States of America. So governors, whether they're uh, governors, especially Republican governments, do everything they can to dissuade people from casting a ballot. So that's something you need to keep at the back of your mind when if you are somebody who's following the United States uh, presidential elections and the elections to the Senate and Congress, that to a significant degree, what you see at the end of the day is determined by uh, legislation which is passed locally to ensure that the incumbents continue to be re-elected. 
little bit like the Elkie Peterson regime uh, in, in Queensland uh, when I lived there in the 60s, 70s, in early 70s. You know, it's the same process. They set up laws which disenfranchised city people in comparison to their uh, uh, country base. It's uh, the same concept, and that's why a lot of people are concerned as far as the United States presidential election that we are not going to see a fair election. It's not about postal ballots being tampered, as Mr Trump would like to suggest, uh, where they tried to uh, remove money from the uh, American Postal Service and to ensure that votes didn't get in, because Democratic voters tend to use the postal vote more than Republican voters because they're more concerned about the coronavirus uh, pandemic. So these are things you need to think about if you follow the United States election. And the other thing is that if uh, push comes to shove, as we saw, I think it was in the 2000 election, where the election was determined by the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court had to make a decision regarding a hanging chance, which is a little piece of paper when you click, if it doesn't fall off uh, completely, is, is it legitimate or not? And obviously the court found in the uh, favour of Mr Bush Jr., and that gave us the uh, Iraq War and the horrific consequences uh, regarding that war, which we continue to suffer around the world. So if you are a follower of uh, elections, that's something to look at. It's also, I just like if you, are, if you do follow elections, we'll just go to the New Zealand elections. It was quite interesting. Uh, it's quite, they've, they've got what's called a mixed proportional representative system. So what that means is the amount of votes you get determines the number of seats in Parliament. And we saw the Labor Party uh, gain 64 seats in a 120-member parliament with 49.19% uh, of the vote. While the Greens, which have a, a much lower vote than the Greens in uh, Australia, which ranks around 10%, they gained 6.7% of the vote and uh, snared 10 seats in the uh, new New Zealand parliament. So there are different ways of managing electoral systems. I mean, the first-past-the-post type of so-called parliamentary democracy we have today, that England is concerned, is about the most basic type of uh, democracy where where you may find people... You do find people constantly being elected to parliament to represent uh, districts which actually haven't given them over 50% of the vote. At least in Australia, we've got a proportional representation system and uh, you can vote for a uh, smaller party or a minor party, knowing full well that they won't be elected, but knowing full well that your preferences will continue to have a uh, effect on the outcome of the election. And then you've got what's called direct democracy, where you don't actually have a parliamentary process. What you have is people making decisions at a local, regional or national level and then, uh, and then appointing or electing delegates to coordinate those decisions at those levels. And that's what's called direct democracy, which is the type of democracy which I think we should be looking at in the 21st century, not the uh, dinosaur that's called parliamentary democracy. But if you do follow elections, you've had the New Zealand elections, you've had the ACT elections, you've got the Queensland elections coming up, and this goes on and on. But uh, keep in mind that uh, the results, as we saw in Belarus, the results uh, can be easily manipulated by legislation of uh, ruling elites. And that's why parliamentary democracy has got 
such little support uh, around the world in 2020. Okay, listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Now, there's two fascinating cases going on in the courts currently, which I think highlight the nature of the type of society we live in. One is the fracking case, which is currently in in the Supreme Court in the Northern Territory. Now, it's interesting that a Indigenous owner, uh, Conrory, Conrad Rory, he, and a, a number of his supporters are facing charges of criminal damage, which could which has a maximum sentence of 14 years imprisonment for digging three small holes in the parliamentary lawn two years ago uh, to elect to erect a uh, or an effigy of a drilling site to highlight the fact that they didn't want franking on their lands. See, a lot of people have the mistaken belief that um, native title means that um, Indigenous Australians can actually veto money on their land. What native title gives them is the ability, is the right to negotiate some type of compensation, but it does not give them the right to veto. So with the Northern Territory elections uh, you know, uh, that were held, one of the significant issues was fracking, introducing of fracking in uh, the Northern Territory, and uh, obviously the Northern Territory people voted for it, as both of the major parties supported fracking. But there was significant resistance among Indigenous people across the Northern Territory to fracking. And it's quite interesting that a uh, peaceful protest where three small holes were dug in the parliamentary lawn to elect to erect an effigy of a drilling rig uh, means that uh, a number of the uh, traditional owners are now facing court and could find themselves in jails for years being charged with criminal damage. So, obviously, I mean, fracking is a real issue. There is a moratorium on fracking in Victoria currently, but it, uh, but there isn't in the rest of the country. It's a real issue. And the reason we need to go down that path is because previous federal governments, both Labor and Liberal, have sold off all the offshore gas supplies for a pittance, for a pittance, and now there is no gas left, that's right, there is no gas left uh, for local consumption, so governments are forced to uh, go down the fracking pathway, and the federal government has been doing everything it can to support fracking, despite the extensive amount of uh, material available which highlights the damage it does to the water supplies and the soil. And it's quite um, interesting to see that the government is willing to use Northern Territory quite serious charges levied against uh, traditional owners who are protesting about uh, people fracking on their traditional lands. Now, the other case, which is uh, not a legal case, but a case which will be going to the Fair Work Commission, really highlights the rise and rise and rise 
and rise of surveillance capitalism over the last uh, few years, especially during the coronavirus uh, pandemic period. Well, we've seen more and more people use delivery systems in order to get takeaway food. More and more people are using the um, so-called Uber taxi system. So, and the thing about uh, the new technology, it's nothing more than 19th century capitalism. That's all it is. It's pre-unionised worker exploitation. These people who work for these organisations are theoretically uh, individual contractors. They are individual, although they get their uniforms from the organisation, they get their work from the organisation, they get their orders from the organisation, the list goes on and on. Now, these organisations make a big deal about flexibility and autonomy for the people working for them and, say, their individual contractors. But the reality is that these organisations which have uh, uh, grown and grown because more and more Australians are using these uh, organisations because it's convenient to get somebody to deliver food to your door and it's convenient maybe, uh, you know, to catch an, an Uber and the list goes on and on, is that we have allowed this cancer to grow in our society and a delivery worker who'd worked for the organisation for three years, Diego Franco, with the help of the Transport Workers uh, Union, is taking uh, the matter of his dismissal to the Fair Work Commission, not just about the way he was dismissed, but the fact that he is not an individual contractor for the Fair Work Commission, for once and for all, to uh, highlight uh, this type of uh, activity. Because... This is all about breaking down the award system. And that's what people forget. They, tr they think that this is something else, but it's not. This is a about breaking down the award system, which has been built over, over decades, if not centuries, of people struggling to improve their wages and conditions. And in Australia, we have a growing number of workers who no longer are covered by the award system. Although they have one employer or maybe two employers, they are considered to be individual contractors. And you see it in food delivery, you see it in postal delivery, you see it in uh, uh, aged care facilities, you see it in child care facilities, and the list goes on and on. So... You see it in uh, public education, private education, that people are considered not to be <coughs> employees who are covered by awards, but they are considered to be individual contractors. If you're an individual contractor, you are not covered by an award. There is no sick pay. There is no holiday pay. Uh, there is no protection against uh, instant dismissal. And the list goes on and on and on. Now, the tragedy is that the federal government has been supporting this push for years now to destroy the award system. And the, supposedly the uh, recent discussions we've been had between the ACTU and the federal government were all about introducing... These are the fancy words I like to use to talk about 19th century capitalism, where there is no protection for workers. Introduce flexibility and autonomy. 
and it all it's all about flexibility for the employer who can employ you for half an hour, an hour, two hours if he doesn't he or she doesn't like you. You know, you don't get the orders and uh, you uh, drop off the perch, and the list goes on and on. At the same time, not only are these so-called you know gig economy the gig economy exploiting the workers who they use to carry out uh, the work, but they're also exploiting the organisations which they uh, deliver for in a variety of ways. And we've seen these some of these organisations now arcing up and saying, I'm not going to pay 30% or 40% of my fee to this organisation to deliver my food because most of the money doesn't go to the workers because they're individual contractors and not protected by awards. And that doesn't go to the, and obviously doesn't go to the organisations which contract. Now, I have never used a delivery system. Never. Never. And I don't intend to use a delivery system. I mean, this is, you do have an individual choice. You can use it or you don't use it. If you use it, there's no point um, complaining about the gig economy because the gig economy is the way that employers will be able to break down the much-fought-for award system in this country. It's not just about de-unionisation. Only 14% of Australian workers currently belong to unions. It's not about destroying collective bargaining through a union process. It's not about removing a worker's right to strike. It's all about destroying the award system and making every worker in this country an individual contractor, especially in the private sector. Because when I talk about 14% unionisation, unionisation in the private sector is now less than 7%. That's right, less than 7%. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano, hosting today's Anarchist World this week. If you'd like to listen to the podcast, you can listen to the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. You can write to me. Yes, I do receive letters to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Now, uh, you can um, go to a number of Facebook pages, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public, Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation, Defend and extend public housing, public housing, everybody's business. You can go to a number of websites, anarchismedia.org, pipsy.net, public interest before corporate interest.net, YouTube channel, pipsy.net, and the list goes on and on and on. So uh, there's a lot of ways you can contact us. And if you are interested in joining a political party, which is not afraid of the Murdoch Empire, which wants to make fundamental changes, not just to the economic system, but the uh, uh, political system. They can all, you're always free to join public interest before corporate interest. You can download the application form by going to pipsy.net, pipsy.net. So, interesting. Now, what's surveillance capitalism? It's an interesting word, surveillance capitalism. I think what the coronavirus pandemic is highlighting is how powerful and how indispensable to the community many of these new platforms, relatively new platforms are, which are owned and run 
by monopolies. And unlike a traditional uh, capitalist relationship where private investment for private profit, where you rely on uh, consumers paying you for products and you maximise your profits by uh, working offshore or or, uh, screwing your workers onshore, surveillance capitalism is something very new because it's based on the concept that it provides you a so-called free service, whether it's the search engine Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, whether it's YouTube, which is part of the Google network, and the list goes on and on. But the whole basis of this new so-called new economy, or what we describe as surveillance capitalism, is based on the fact that you, the consumer, are the product. It is your personal information which is analysed, which is then used to push you in particular directions, not just economically but politically. It pushes you in particular directions. It's no accident that uh, if one day you're thinking about, uh, or a few few minutes early, you're kind of making, thinking about buying a cat enclosure that um, in the next uh, hour or so, you're going to get inundated with uh, commercials about cat enclosures because that's that's how they make their money. It's very simple. It's through advertising. It's another mechanism of advertising. But unlike you having to buy in the the old days a newspaper where you read the advertising or looked at television where the so-called free TV, where the advertisers... um, paid for the ability for you to look at TV, which continues to happen, You, your information becomes the nuts and bolts of that organisation. And the more information you provide, the more advertising can be directed in your direction. So it's called surveillance capitalism because it is a capitalism which is based on looking at you. Now, surveillance capitalism can also be modified and used by authoritarian nation states and a so-called democratic state in order to control population. It was quite interesting to see the Australian government has set aside some money, a fair amount of money, to look at facial recognition devices in this country, the same type of thing they rile against the Chinese are using in order to curb and minimise dissent in China, we're looking at exactly the same thing. So surveillance capitalism is called surveillance capitalism because it's private investment, a private profit. You are the you are the product. Your personal data is the product, and then that product is on sold to advertisers who pay for the privilege of being able to tailor the advertising to, to uh, suit your particular so-called economic needs at that particular point in time. So it is a powerful system. So if it's become a public necessity... Now, Facebook and Twitter, I think, could disappear tomorrow and they wouldn't be missed. Okay, I mean, I use Facebook for a variety of reasons, but it could 
disappear tomorrow and have minimal impact on society. The search engines like Google have an exceptionally important role in society today. They have become part of the infrastructure of society, whether it's uh, hospitals, whether it's schools, whether it's businesses, they've become completely dependent on this platform for the way they work, how they survive, how they expand, how they make profits is completely dependent on this platform. And it's quite interesting to see that in the last 24 hours, the United States Justice Department has finally, finally commenced antitrust uh, case against Google in the United States of America and that the Europe, number of European states have been trying to tackle the monopoly. This private organisation now has, not just on the dissemination of information, but the fact that it is essential to the running of a 21st century society. So what we have is a privately owned monopoly which basically can hold a country to hostage. And we're seeing this in in Australia, where the uh, Morrison-led Liberal National Party is trying to get some extra money for Murdoch by uh, getting the the, uh, Google to actually pay for the news and Facebook for the news they put on their platforms. So it's quite it's quite interesting that little little uh, side struggle. But the main struggle is if this is a public necessity, why do we leave it in the hands of the private sector? Now the Australian Broadcasting Corporation was set up in 1924, despite vicious resistance from privately owned newspapers at that particular point in time and it moved into radio and television later on to give people an opportunity to listen to, see and read information they wouldn't be able to you know, um, see in, in, in the private sector. So this organisation, as I said, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation set up for that purpose. Although we are now seeing the winding back of the influence of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation because the introduction of short-term contracts for its presenters, a decrease in public funding for the broadcaster, and a more censorious political censorship type of uh, self-censorship which is occurring now in the public broadcaster, it still continues to play an important role in Australian society. So why should we leave a platform as important as Google, which is now essential infrastructure, essential infrastructure for the running of hospitals, for the running of schools, for our traffic management, and the list goes on and on. Why should we leave it in the hands of a private monopoly which uses its monopoly to threaten us, as we are currently seeing while has the federal government you know, squirms in order to put in a little bit of legislation to help their Murdoch mates out. So why should it be left in private hands if it's an essential infrastructure? Now, we did see 
the privatisation of essential infrastructure over the last uh, four decades. We've seen the privatisation of the ports, the privatisation of the airports, the privatisation of telecommunication, uh, the privatisation of gas, the privatisation of electricity, the privatisation in certain states of public housing, and the list goes on and on. And we've seen the damage that that causes to a country like Australia. This is a large continent. We need to cross-subsidise services in order to ensure that people in regional and rural Australia receive the same level of services as people in densely populated urban areas. So if it is an essential infrastructure, why we should why should we let one private monopoly dominate that space, irrespective of how, you know, uh, powerful it is. Now, so there are a number of mechanisms by which to tackle this monopoly. One, as we're currently seeing in the United States, using the antitrust laws. Now, there are no such thing as antitrust laws in Australia. That's why we have monopolies in various facets of our economy, which are almost immovable because there are no, there's no legislative platform via which they can be broken up. Although the they keep talking about, you know, ASIC having a little bit more power, but that's a different story. So why shouldn't we have a public platform that provides the same service as Google? Set up competition. You could do it by public funding, like the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You could have an independent board, which is, uh, it could be selected by lot, it could be, as we see in the ABC, selected by the government of the day, but you could have an independent board controlling the situation. You could actually use it as a mechanism by which people who want to use that platform um, have greater privacy protections of their data. You would pay for the use of that platform, but it would be publicly owned. So you'd have a publicly owned platform, the same as Google, better than Google, which will provide competition to Google as we saw in the banking sector before the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, which would then um, make Google a less powerful organisation in our society. Because it's one thing, you know, to have a Facebook page. It's another thing to have an organisation which actually controls the delivery of health services, the delivery of education, the list goes on and on. So we should start thinking about public funding. Now, another model could be the introduction of a subscription system and the setting up of a cooperative where people pay a small amount of money to be part of this larger cooperative where they've got privacy protection regarding their data. And again, this type of uh, avenue we see in the community radio network, where we see community radio stations which are owned by their affiliates. So this is another mechanism. But at the end of the day, these monopolies need to be broken. If they're not broken, we are going to find ourselves in more and more difficult situations as our interaction with these privately owned monopolies and duopolies become essential to the survival of society. So we're facing 
three problems with the gig economy. One is surveillance by the state, and we see that around the world through facial recognition and through many other ways via which individuals can be targeted uh, on a regular basis every time they leave their front door. Through facial recognition, they can be followed, they can be targeted, they can be controlled. So we see state surveillance using these new platforms. Then we have surveillance capitalism where your information becomes their money and they use your information to tailor advertising to you in order to maximise their profits and they're using your information and not protecting that information and making that information available in a public network. And the third thing, which I think is the most dangerous aspect, is the return to 19th century capitalism, return to pre unionised state where everybody theoretically is an individual contractor, where the award system is uh, washed away, where what's left of the trade union system is destroyed. So there are major issues that we face and every time we use these platforms, and I do use these platforms, these are the type of things you need to keep in mind. Are you willing to support some type of platform which is going to destroy the award system? Are you willing to support a platform which is how much information are you going to give to these platforms in order to be able to communicate with your friends and have a Facebook page? So these are the things we need to uh, keep on top of on a regular basis. So there are a lot of things that are changing and I think it's important that uh, we keep on top of those changes because if we don't keep on top of those changes before we know it, we'll become hostages to the very technology which theoretically was uh, designed initially to assist us. Because if you remember the early days of the World Wide Web, it was about decentralisation, it was about non-profit, it was about giving people the ability to bypass the dominant media it was about freedom. Today, the technology that we have is now monopolised by private corporations and by sovereign nation state security apparatus. And that is used to control us. It is used to spy on us. It is used to skew political opinion. It is used to uh, sell us stuff we don't really need. And it's used to destroy all the gains that have been made during the uh, the history of during the period of revolution in the 20th century. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Look, a number of people have been asking me what is what's going to happen regarding the Francesco Fantine Memorial, which we usually have on in early November, and what's going to happen uh, regarding the Eureka celebration. Now, unfortunately, there are major travel restrictions in this country, and uh, we will be holding the Francesco Fantine Memorial Commemoration in Murchison. Um, it'll be much smaller than usual. Uh, 
uh, numbers were limited to 10. Uh, obviously, the only people who can actually uh, go at this stage are people living in regional Victoria. Nobody from Melbourne can actually come. So we'll talk more about that next week. As far as the Eureka celebrations are concerned, uh, reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations. We normally have people from around Australia, which is not going to happen this year because it's going to be on the 3rd of December, but we will have a modified uh, ceremony which we'll, we will conduct at the old Ballarat Cemetery at the uh, grave site. The number of people that will be able to attend will be determined by the uh, legislation at that particular point in time. We're not out there during the commemoration to actually... Uh, we're there to uh, honour the sacrifice of those men and women involved in the Eureka Rebellion on the 3rd of December, 1854. We most likely will have a uh, ceremony around midday and uh, whether we have a picnic after after or not, we'll decide. We haven't decided, so it's very open. But there won't be the 4 a.m. to uh, you know 10 p.m. you know extravaganza we have every year. It will be limited. Who'll be able to attend will be determined by um, uh, the particular policy at that particular point in time. So we'll keep you informed about that. So both will be going ahead, but at a, but a, but a modified uh, level. As I said before, are you listening to the Anarchist World this week? So, what can we learn? Well, we can learn a lot of things. And I think the most important thing to remember is that ultimately it's people that determine what happens in any society, irrespective of the degree of surveillance, irrespective of the manipulation of the economy to suit a very small minority, irrespective of public resources which have been, which have been poured into the private sector, irrespective of the destruction of the private sector, Ultimately, the type of society we live in uh, depends on us. And I know it's, uh, it's a difficult thing to say because we always like to think that somebody else should do something about that or the government should do something about that. But the reality is whether anything happens in society is determined through struggle. And if you look at every gain that's been made in any society of over thousands of years, it's been gained by people coming together and fighting for that change. It has resulted in deaths, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, tens of millions of people over history have died or been sacrificed in order to create a more egalitarian community. And nothing highlighted this more than the Paris Commune in 1871, where over 10% of the people involved in the Commune, over 50,000 people, were summarily executed after the commune was overrun. This, the Paris Commune was the forerunner of the modern revolutionary movement. But the fact is that change comes through struggle. And what we need to remember is that we are the people we've been waiting for. You can't rely on religious leaders. We've seen what's happened in many religious organisations around the world. We can't rely on, you know, sovereign nation-state leaders or our parliamentary representatives because, to a significant degree, parliamentary representatives are top of legislative, legislative agenda which is put up for debate is determined by the type of system people find themselves in and who controls that system, whether it's controlled by a, a one-party state, whether it's controlled by uh, economic uh, duopolies and monopolies, 
I mean, the type of legislation that is put up to a significant degree depends on that. And then we have to look at the type of society we live in because, you know, ultimately, I hate to say this, we are a lucky people. And we're lucky for, not because of any work we've done. I mean, the only work we did was, uh, you know, uh, subjugate this country's indigenous populations in the, in the most uh, vicious and brutal manner. But in terms of only having 25 million people living on our continent, irrespective of how dry this continent is, the fact is there's only 25 million people. And you would think of any place on planet Earth, any place on planet Earth, that we should be leading the charge to improving the lives of people. We should be leading the charge to ensure that we have a more democratic type of society. We should be leading that charge. And believe it or not, we were leading that charge at the end of the 19th century, where many of the gains that would be made were the envy of the rest of the world. Let's not forget, Victoria in Australia was the first jurisdiction in the world which, which introduced three compulsory secular education in 1874. Let's not forget that. And that many of the reforms that came in obviously came through struggle, through the great struggles of the 1891 strikes across the eastern seaboard, which um, eventually failed, which led to the creation of the Australian Labor Party, which initially had a U in Labor. And uh, it's quite interesting looking at the uh, New Zealand Labor Party and the New Zealand uh, and the Australian Labor Party You've noticed that the Australian Labor Party has removed the U from Labor. It's L-A-B-O-R. So you have been removed from Labor. While in New Zealand, in the Australian, in the New Zealand Labor Party, it's still L-A-B-O-U-R, and the U has been left in the party. So I find that quite uh, funny, but interesting. But ultimately, you know, I mean, what I'm telling you, you know, all right? Every journey starts with a first step. You know, it doesn't matter where you go, if you don't take that first step, you're not, you've got no chance of completing that journey. And so we need to take that first step. Now, many of our listeners have for years been involved in agitation, for years have been involved in struggles to improve people's lives, to devolve power. I know that. But sometimes doing things as an individual is not enough. And that's the situation we face today in 2020. Individuals can initiate campaigns. They can put forward ideas. But in order for those ideas to become prevalent in society, things like a universal basic income, things like nationalising our mineral resources in order to ensure the profits are made are spread between Indigenous Australians and the rest of the community. There are many things we can do, things like a 1% stock market turnover tax to help fund a universal basic income. And a universal basic income protects everybody in society, ensures that no child, and I hate to use this term, lives in poverty. We have 700,000 children living in poverty in a country of 25 million people living on a continent. So ultimately, we need, as individuals, to come together. Obviously, during a coronavirus pandemic, it's become very difficult. But we don't, we need to remember that we can do it. 
Nick, I've been involved in public interest before corporate interest. I was a foundation member, one of the foundation members since 2015. Now, public interest before corporate interest is not a panacea. We don't have all the answers. But it is a mechanism by which people can come together to look at issues, raise issues, and raise them at a wider level in the community. It doesn't matter how many anarchist worlds this week I broadcast. Now, I've been broadcasting now for over 43 years. This is my 43rd year, okay, broadcasting. It doesn't matter how many passionate programs there are, how many boring programs there are, how many listless programs there are of Anarchist World this week. It doesn't matter how many ideas that we throw into the pot. It doesn't matter how we analyse things. It doesn't matter what commentary we make. Unless other people join us in that struggle to create a society without rulers, nothing will ever change. This is not about individuals leading movement. As we see in Thailand with the students, when their leaders are arrested, they continue to protest. They continue to protest to try to break the grip the military and the monarchy has in Thailand. They continue to protest despite arrests. And that's the key. We need to continue to struggle. We need to form organisations. We need to join organisations that are out there that are fighting to develop power and share wealth. That is the essence of all struggle. Democracy is not about casting about every three years. Democracy, direct democracy, any real democracy is about active participation in the in the community, in the political process, in social activities, in between elections. That's what democracy is. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station from Broome to Taree to Mount Beauty to Adelaide on the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listening next week to the Anarchist World this week. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10 a.m. every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger!
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.